revolution lives The revolution never dies All eyes are on it lip Cause they're keeping it alive Right viruses on the air Radio fresh shit fills the sky Doing what many would not dare Dodging bullets from both sides Abdul Sarut is on the mic Leading a protest in the streets It's just like seven years ago No surrender, no retreat revolution lives The revolution never dies All eyes are on it live Cause they're keeping it alive My mood is on the bridge Above the Idlib highway sign Waving the revolution flag Pride and defiance fill his eyes Rania Kaiser stands above Filming the thousands with one voice She tells the butcher he'll go down And on the day we will rejoice The revolution lives Revolution never dies All eyes are on it live Cause they're keeping it alive Well something's gotta give This just might be the time When we see the mountain top God give us strength to make the climb Whether Idlib is your home Or you came from another place Let's all sing the rally song Until it fills up every space The revolution lives Revolution never dies. All eyes are on it live. Cause they're keeping it alive. The revolution lives. The revolution never dies. All eyes are on it live. Cause they're keeping it alive 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 Revolution never dies Revolution never dies Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex. 
once again with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you on the 22nd of December. And we are um, opening once again with the song Idlib, The Revolution Lives by Dylan Connor, his homage to the heroic Syrian opposition activist of Idlib, the northern province, which is now the uh, one remaining area of Syria, which is still under the control of the opposition forces. Uh, We played this song uh, on a podcast that we did a couple of months ago, and unfortunately, we are reprising it because uh, exactly a month ago, on November 23rd, the very first person who is mentioned in the very first verse of the song among the heroic activists who were actually named in this song was assassinated. Ryed Farris is on the air. Radio fresh, it fills the sky, doing what many would not dare, dodging bullets from both sides. Reads the uh, lyrics of the opening verse of Idlib, The Revolution Lives by Dylan Connor. Ryed Farris was a producer at um, Radio Fresh, the opposition radio station in the town of Kafran Bel in Idlib province, which throughout the course of the Syrian revolution has been raising a voice of opposition to the dictatorship of Bashar Assad. Kafran Bel was one of the uh, very earliest towns to... um, declare its independence from the Assad regime way back in 2011 or 2012. And uh, you may have seen its um, extremely uh, photogenic memes, which it has been posting on social media, where um, activists in the town have been posing for the cameras with their own hand-painted banners, for instance, proclairing their solidarity with Black Lives Matter and um, related movements here in the United States and in the West. And as the... um, jihadist or kayadist forces, whatever you want to call them, have been uh, gaining more of a hand in Idlib, uh, Radio Fresh, and the, the residents of Kafran Bel have also been resisting them. Hence the um, reference in the lyrics to doing what many would not dare, dodging bullets from both sides. So uh, Radio Fresh, which has been a voice of the um, secular pro-democratic Syrian opposition for all of these years has, uh, in the past couple of years, been um, continuing to broadcast in defiance of the Qaedist forces who have been attempting to establish their control over Kafran Bell, and some of their militias are, are active in the town. And um, they have, uh, you know, these jihadists have actually raided the offices, the studios of Radio Fresh, issued death threats against the uh, the journalists and producers there, and issued diktats um, for censorship. For instance, barring the broadcasting of music, because we all know that music is um, heretical and an abomination before God, according to these yahoos. And uh, the uh, producers at Radio Fresh have found very um, interesting ways to... Um, to, re- to simultaneously resist and poke fun at these diktats. For instance, um, they broadcast hours of animal noises, barnyard sounds, rather than broadcasting music. And through such um, 
irreverent tactics actually got the jihadists to to back off, and they were actually able to resume broadcasting music. But um, on November 23rd, Ryad Farris paid with his life and was gunned down in a drive-by shooting, along with um, another activist and journalist from Radio Fresh by the name of Hamoud Al-Junaid, November 23rd of this year. So um, we bid a hail and farewell to Rayed Faris, who is now a martyr of the Syrian revolution. The Syrian revolution, which so many commentators here in the United States of the left, the right, and the center seem to have everything invested in denying its mere existence. And in a shameful betrayal of this heroic, secular, pro-democratic opposition, which survives even now, insists on portraying the situation in Syria as merely a choice between the dictatorship of Bashar Assad and the jihadists, or the Qaedists, or whatever you want to call them. And simply writing out of the, of the picture the civil resistance forces, which, by the way, have actually, I mean, uh, you know, Idlib governorate now is kind of a, um, a patchwork of areas which are controlled by the Qaedists and areas which are controlled by the, the civil opposition, the civil resistance, secular, pro-democratic, and in many cases unarmed civil resistance forces, which have actually held popular uprisings in several towns in Idlib now where, uh, you know, the... Uh, the local populace in the town has um, actually chased the uh, the Qaedists out through um, you know through a mass uprising. Again, utterly courageous and heroic actions, which demand solidarity from the outside world, and especially one would think from progressives in the West. And shamefully, very little such solidarity has been forthcoming. The local coordination committees, the network of um, what we might call affinity groups, which began the uh, Syrian revolution back in 2011, coordinating protests at the local level in um, towns and municipalities across Syria, have now actually become the, uh, the organs of governance in many areas of, of Idlib, which are under the control neither of the Assad regime nor of the Qaedist forces, but of the secular pro-democratic civil resistance movement where so many people have so much invested into even denying the existence of. So uh, this to me is, you know, always whenever you're talking about Syria, this has always got to be the very central issue, the very central theme of any discussion about Syria is trying to loan some support to the secular civil opposition which is now more under siege than ever, largely confined to a few areas of Idlib province in the north of the country, with the rest of the country having largely been reconquered by the Assad dictatorship with massive Russian military intervention. And actually has been carrying out a campaign of mass extermination of disloyal elements of the populace in the areas of the country that it controls. And uh, there is one other significant um, exception to this, other than Idlib province, and that is the Kurdish region of Rojava, 
which lies to the east of Idlib in the northeastern pocket of Syria, which is under the control of the um, rebel Kurdish forces, which has sort of become a, uh, a de facto U.S. protectorate, because this is where uh, most of the, um, those uh, 2,000 U.S. troops, which are in Syria, have been embedded with the, with, the, with the Kurdish militias there, which have been fighting ISIS. And it's certainly one of the strangest ironies of the world political situation at the moment that the ultra-reactionary administration of Donald Trump here in the United States has actually been, you know, grooming as proxies or allies on the ground in Syria a, um, a revolutionary Kurdish movement which has got radical left politics and is openly influenced by anarchism. But it happens to be the case. Now, the Assad regime does not really have much of a presence in this, uh, at this point in um, this northeastern pocket of Syria. And the U.S., contrary to all of the propaganda and popular belief, has really never expended much effort into opposing the Assad dictatorship. The, all of uh, the U.S. intervention in Syria has been aimed at opposing ISIS, with the exception of a mere handful of airstrikes, which you heard a lot about <laughs> on the two occasions after the Assad regime carried out chemical attacks and the, and the U.S. Uh, you know, retaliated in the second occasion in April of this year, <clears throat> retaliated you know, merely by bombing um, military bases, causing no deaths whatsoever, let alone any civilian deaths, no deaths even of military personnel. And this aroused all of this media protest, media attention and protest and outrage. Meanwhile, the U.S. has massively bombed Raqqa and other towns in this um, northeastern pocket of Syria, which were held by ISIS. Raqqa was practically reduced to rubble by U.S. airstrikes, jacking up a horrific toll in civilian casualties and went almost completely unnoticed by the entire outside world with the exception of, you know, Amnesty International and a few other human rights groups whose, you know, job it is to keep track of such things and to issue denunciations, which they did. And uh, the U.S.'s partners on the ground in this campaign, the forces which actually succeeded in taking Raqqa and are continuing to um, now pursue the few remaining pockets of control by ISIS in this um, northeastern region of Syria have been the revolutionary Kurdish forces. Now, this is kind of a, um, you know, a dirty secret for both sides, even though, you know, it's a completely open secret. Uh, obviously, the, um, the Trump administration does not like to um, make much of the fact that um, the forces which it's backing on the ground are left-wing, radical Kurdish revolutionaries who were influenced by anarchism, <laughs> particularly because this is, you know, an extremely offensive to the Turkish regime of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is bitterly opposed to the Kurdish revolution. And similarly, um, the um, anarchist um, solidarity activists around the world who are um, rallying around uh, Rojava, as, as these revolutionary Kurds call their call their autonomous zone in the northeast of Syria, they don't want to make much of the fact that, you know, that they're, um, uh, you know, allies in, um, in, in Syria are, in fact, being backed by U.S. airstrikes. So <laughs> everybody has got an interest in denying this reality, but nonetheless, it is, in fact, the reality. And uh, finally, um, 
with Trump's recent announcement that uh, those um, 2,000 U.S. troops who have been embedded with the Kurdish forces are going to be withdrawn from Syria over the course of the next 30 years. This has generated a great deal of, um, of controversy. And um, even some of the, uh, the forces in the United States and in the West that have been um, mobilizing in support of Rojava have actually been, um, because of the urgency of the situation, have been forced to oppose the U.S. withdrawal. Noam Chomsky actually, very, very uncharacteristically, issued a statement opposing the withdrawal of the U.S. forces from Rojava. And interestingly, Trump's announcement that he's going to be withdrawing U.S. forces from Syria comes mere days after Erdogan made an announcement that he is going to um, invade Rojava and attack the revolutionary Kurdish forces there. Uh, Turkey is already um, got a substantial military presence in Idlib, but the uh, Euphrates River, which runs through the middle of Syria, has sort of been a dividing line between a, um, a sort of an area to the west of it, which is kind of a Turkish protectorate, and the area to the east of it, which is kind of a U.S. protectorate. Well, now it looks like the U.S. is pulling out, And Turkey is getting ready to cross the Euphrates River and kick Kurdish ass. So um, Rojava is at very real risk now of being um, invaded and crushed by Turkish forces. And, of course, the reason this is happening now is that ISIS is almost entirely defeated. They basically got one or two towns left which are still under their control. So um, the Kurdish forces have outlived their usefulness to the empire and are being thrown overboard, which is exactly what, uh, you know, we've been anticipating was going to happen after ISIS was defeated. You know, those of us who have been following the situation with, uh, you know, and looking at it with, with clear eyes and no illusions have been predicting this for years, ever since back in uh, 2014, after the Battle of Kobani, when um, the U.S. forged its alliance with the revolutionary Kurds. So um, this, is a, uh, this is like the really critical moment that we've been waiting for. And uh, unless some pressure can be brought on uh, Trump to change course and not withdraw those, um, those troops, uh, it looks entirely too probable that Rojava is going to be invaded by Turkish forces. In the weeks to come, and it should be noted that um, you know those two thousand troops who are embedded with the with the Kurdish forces in northern Syria, it's been widely speculated, and to me this is entirely logical that the real reason that they've been there has been not military so much as political, to restrain Turkey from crossing the Euphrates River and attacking Rojava. Because if they do, they're going to be, you know, attacking forces which have got U.S. troops embedded among them. And they're essentially going to be attacking their own imperial patron and NATO ally, the United States. So obviously they're not going to do that. So the removal of these embedded troops can be seen explicitly as a green light to Erdogan to cross the Euphrates River and kick Kurdish ass. So... It doesn't really require too much insight to, um, to read what's really going on here. It was also just reported that, um, that Trump actually took 
the move of um, of making this announcement that the troops are going to be withdrawn after consulting with Erdogan. So, uh, I mean, you know, just follow the train of events here. Erdogan threatens he's going to um, he's going to cross the Euphrates River and attack Rojava. He consults with uh, with Trump. Erdogan and Trump consult with each other, and then Trump make, makes this announcement that the um, that the U.S. forces are going to be removed. And it's all happening precisely as uh, you know the last um, ISIS stronghold in Syria is about to fall to the Kurdish forces. So it's pretty obvious what's going on here. And what makes this all particularly dangerous is that just as the um, Again, just as, you know, the U.S. has sort of become the, the protector of the Rojava Kurds east of the Euphrates River, Turkey has sort of become the protector of the um, Syrian rebel and opposition forces in Idlib to the west of the Euphrates River. And to a certain extent, Idlib is continuing to survive as an opposition-controlled province because there are Turkish military forces there. And um, uh, both Assad and Putin realized that if they invaded Idlib, they would have to be directly engaging Turkish forces. So Turkey has actually won the loyalty of a lot of the um, of the rebel forces in Idlib. And this has had the effect of pitting the Syrian rebels against the Kurdish revolutionaries because uh Turkey is thoroughly hostile to any notions of Kurdish autonomy in the region, even outside of its own borders, because of the uh, fear that it would set an example for the um, Kurdish revolutionaries within Turkey's borders. And, uh, you know, frequently they just use this uh, shorthand of PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party uh, to refer to the Kurdish revolutionary forces on both sides of the border. That's actually not correct. The, uh, the PKK technically does not have any presence within Syria, but they are ideologically allied. And you could say that the Rojava Kurds are kind of within the, um, the ideological orbit of, of the PKK. So obviously, uh, you know, Turkey is thoroughly hostile to, um, to the survival of Rojava as an autonomous zone. And uh, this in turn has had the effect of... Um, causing the Rojava Kurds to uh, put out feelers, at least, towards some kind of a separate peace with the Assad dictatorship as the price of maintaining their, um, their autonomous zone. And uh, because, you know, Assad and, and Turkey are um, at least ostensibly opposed to each other. Although I should note that uh, another interesting wrinkle here is that the... Um, the Turkish foreign ministry, just as, as all of these um, announcements have been made, you know, that uh, Turkey is going to invade Rojava and that Trump is going to be pulling his troops out of Rojava. The, uh, the Turkish foreign ministry actually issued a statement that, you know, if there were democratic elections in Syria and Assad were to win, they would consider um, recognizing the regime, which is an utterly cynical statement because uh, obviously there are no democratic uh, elections which are possible under Bashar Assad, and the you know the first and foremost demand of the um, of the opposition in Syria has been that Assad has got to step 
down and, you know, and, and before there can be any kind of a democratic opening. Assad is a hereditary dictator. You know, he and, uh, you know, and his dad before him have been in power in Syria since they took power in a coup d'etat way back in, I believe it was 1970 or 1971. And um, they've been standing in the way of any kind of a democratic opening ever since then. And uh, they actually pledged, you know, their supporters pledged to, quote unquote, burn the country down before ceding power when the uh, the Syrian revolution was launched back in 2011. And they have largely made good on that promise. So uh, this is a completely cynical statement on the part of the um, of the Turkish foreign ministry and points to, you know, the reality that, uh, you know, what we're looking at now is basically an imperial carve up of Syria. And this is the circumstances under which, you know, the U.S. is now apparently going to be withdrawing. And this is not a good thing. And certainly, you know, I think that the, um, you know, the, the Syrian opposition, in light of this statement from the foreign ministry, should, you know, think twice before placing any faith in, um, in Turkey as their protector. But nonetheless, I understand that, uh, you know, as they see it, and it's a, it's a legitimate viewpoint, you know, if they... Um, if it were not for the Turkish military presence in Idlib, they would have been crushed and exterminated by Assad. Just as you could argue that if it were not for the U.S. military presence in Rojava, the Kurds would have been crushed and their political experiment exterminated by Turkey. So you can see how the, uh, you know, the rival imperial powers here have been playing the forces on the ground against each other. And what's particularly dangerous about the whole thing is that, as we saw earlier this year, when um, Turkish forces seized Afrin, the one town west of the Euphrates River, which was held by the Rojava Kurds, was um, attacked and seized by Turkish forces. And uh, when that happened... Uh, fighting alongside those Turkish forces and now continuing to occupy Afrin were um, some Syrian Arab rebel forces. And, you know, I would argue that Afrin has been de facto annexed by Turkey at this point, which uh, is certainly an affront to Syrian sovereignty. And, you know, the um, again, it's a real tragedy that the Syrian rebel forces have been, uh, to my mind, you know, uh, really a tragedy that they've been collaborating with Turkey in, you know, the de facto annexation of a piece of um, uh, of Syrian territory by a foreign power. <sighs> so um, once again, you know, there's a possibility that now this is going to repeat itself. And now, if in fact, in the weeks to come, Turkey invades Rojava, that they are going to once again do so with the collaboration of um, Syrian Arab rebel forces. And this would have the effect of directly pitting Syrian Arabs against Syrian Kurds on the battlefield and could precipitate exactly what, you know, I've been fearing for many months now, which is a generalized Arab-Kurdish ethnic war in northern Syria. So all of you um, people who um, are, you know, cheering Trump as a peacenik for withdrawing the U.S. troops from northern Syria, you've really got to think twice about this. 
this is not necessarily, you know, a move which in any to any degree is going to, you know, bring about peace. On the contrary, this could be a move which would dramatically widen and escalate the war and actually turn it into a, you know, a generalized ethnic conflagration in northern Syria, which is, you know, the worst case scenario imaginable. And, you know, similarly, you know, I will point out that you know, I was certainly one of the uh, the voices which was calling for the U.S. to leave Iraq following the invasion, you know, in the years following the invasion of 2003. But when it finally happened under Obama, it was a, um, a precipitous pullout which left in power the Shiite supremacist regime of Nuri al-Maliki, who was, you know, committing terrible reprisals and persecution against the the Sunni majority of Iraq. And that is really what precipitated the emergence of ISIS. And the situation in Iraq actually got much, much worse after the U.S. withdrew, because it withdrew in, again, in a precipitous and irresponsible manner, leaving uh, the, the, the political conditions ripe for a sectarian conflagration, which is exactly what happened. Now, you can argue, and I would agree wholeheartedly, that if the U.S. had not invaded Iraq in 2003, there never would have been any ISIS, and the world would not be in this um, <laughs> horrific state that it's in today. I agree with that, of course. But, uh, you know, the question in 2011, when Obama began the so-called withdrawal from Iraq, and we understand that it wasn't really a withdrawal, U.S. military advisors stayed, private U.S. military contractors stayed, et cetera, et cetera. We recognize that. But the question in 2011, when Obama began the U.S. quasi-withdrawal from Iraq, if you will, the question was not, you know, what should have been done in 2003? <laughs> By that point, what had happened in 2003 had already happened, you know? So the question was, what was to be done then in 2011? And in fact, what was done in 2011 was done irresponsibly and wound up making the situation worse. And I'm afraid that there is great potential for exactly this uh, dynamic to now repeat itself in Syria. So a few closing words about um, what we as you know, activists and progressives here in the West can be doing to try to um, uh, bring whatever you know, pressure or influence we can to bear to try to you know, move things in the right direction in Syria. And I have to say that um, much of the activist response has been very, very problematic. Or let's not even talk about the big majority. And I'm afraid it actually is a majority of the poorly named anti-war forces in the West, which have been squarely on the side of the genocidal dictatorship of Bashar Assad. Let's not even talk about that. Let's talk about that minority Unfortunately, very small minority of the um, progressive and anti-war forces in the West, which have actually been serious about organizing solidarity with revolutionary forces in Syria. The rest can all be dismissed. You know, 
international answer and uh, and all these groups which have been flatly on the wrong side, on the side of Assad, they can merely be dismissed. There's no point in even having a conversation with them. Let's just talk about those elements which at least have been, uh, you know, those those small and marginalized elements which have at least have been concerned with organizing support for revolutionary forces in Syria. Even they, unfortunately, even their response to all of this has, um, to a certain extent, played into the trajectory toward an Arab-Kurdish ethnic war in northern Syria. Because, okay, on one hand, you've got um, the people who support the general Arab-led Syrian revolution the local coordination committees and, to a certain extent, the Free Syrian Army and other pro-democratic armed factions among the rebels, supporting the civil opposition, supporting the civil resistance forces. And they have been calling for solidarity with Idlib. And I share that call wholeheartedly. Then you've got the, um, the elements, the more uh, ideological anarchist elements, for the most part, who have been supporting the Kurdish revolutionary forces in northern Syria, inspired by um, their radical feminist ethic and their um, experiments in uh, direct council-based democracy and their anarchist-influenced model of self-governance. And they have been calling for solidarity with Rojava. And I also share that point of view. The problem is that there is practically no overlap between the people who are calling for solidarity with Idlib and the people who are calling for solidarity with Rojava. And in fact, they have often um, been mutually hostile. And the elements which are calling for um, solidarity with Idlib have been calling the Rojava Kurds terrorists and Stalinists and totalitarians and collaborators with the Assad regime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the people who have been calling for um, solidarity with Rojava have been calling um, the revolutionary forces in Idlib al-Qaeda and jihadists and terrorists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, each playing into the worst stereotypes about the other side. And you know, the thing is, is that the people who are actually on the ground in Syria or facing imminent threat of being exterminated, whether by Russia and Assad on one side or by Turkey and ISIS on the other, they can be forgiven for their dogmatism and for having to make really, really hard choices in terms of, you know, collaborating with interventionist imperialist forces such as Turkey or the United States and for, you know, bandying about, you know, I'll be quite frank, war propaganda, which portrays, you know, the people who are preparing to attack them in demonized terms. They can be forgiven for this because they are under imminent threat of armed attack and an actual extermination. We here in the West are not facing that kind of circumstance. And we have to take responsibility for our privilege. And a part of taking responsibility for our privilege means not engaging in a, um, you know, what, what is called um, in activist lexicon, a condescending scorecard 
for, you know, the revolutionary forces on the ground that, you know, they have to live up uh, to all of our, um, our, you know, standards of democracy and human rights and blah, 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 before we can owe them any support. We have to understand that, you know, they're facing very, very, very difficult choices that we are not facing. On the other hand, taking responsibility for our privilege means not ourselves engaging in the war propaganda and mutual demonization, which is pitting Arab against Kurd in northern Syria. And viewing the situation with a little bit of distance. And when I say distance, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, neutrality or, you know, um, you know this wonkish objectivity. Obviously, I uh, have extremely partisan sentiments about Syria. But by distance, I mean refraining from war propaganda and refraining from mutual demonization and refraining from, you know, a rigid dogmatism about the parties that we support on the ground in Syria. And checking our own behavior and our own rhetoric and our own stances to assure that they are not playing into destructive forces on the ground in Syria and playing into the trajectory towards an ethnic war in Syria. I say solidarity with Idlib. And I say solidarity with Rojava. In spite of the hard choices and the compromise that the revolutionaries on either side, the Arab and the Kurdish revolutionaries on either side of the Euphrates River have had to make. And if I am going to be a minority of one among the serious solidarity activists here in New York City in the United States who is calling for solidarity both with Idlib and with Rojava, so be it. One rather paradoxical note of optimism, which I will, uh, which I will end with, is that um, both the Arab and Kurdish revolutionary forces in Syria are opposed to the U.S. withdrawal. And this could, you know, paradoxically be a point of unity between them. <laughs> now, they're sort of um, opposed to it for different reasons. The, uh, the Arab-led opposition west of the Euphrates River is opposed to the U.S. withdrawal because they don't want to give a free hand to Russia. And the Kurdish revolutionary forces east of the Euphrates River are opposed to the U.S. withdrawal because they don't want to give a free hand to Turkey. <sighs> Nonetheless, they're both opposed to it. And if they could make common cause in opposing all of the imperial powers, and ultimately that includes the U.S., obviously, and calling for um, Syria for the Syrians, regardless of whether they are Arab or Kurdish, Maybe unity between the Arab and Kurdish revolutionary forces can be rebuilt. And I will note that there was a point back, uh, you know, a few years ago. It didn't last very long, but there actually was an alliance between the, um, the, the Rojava Kurds and elements of the Free Syrian Army, where they actually united, forged an al a military alliance to fight ISIS in their respective territories. So the best outcome would be this kind of alliance to be rebuilt in the interests of fighting ISIS in its few remaining pockets, as well as fighting Assad and fighting all of the um, occupying imperial powers in Syria today. Russia, Turkey, the United States, Iran, etc. 
But a uh, again, you know, a, a precipitous U.S. withdrawal, which is merely providing a green light for Turkish intervention in Rojava, is going to have exactly the opposite effect. And it's going to have the effect, again, of pitting Arab against Kurds and potentially of expanding the war. I hope to God that I am wrong and that it can be avoided. And maybe this disaster can be avoided if we progressives in the West can effectively raise a voice for the survival of the liberated territory of Idlib and of the Syrian revolution and for the survival of the liberated territory of Rojava and the Kurdish revolutionary movement in northern Syria. Tell me what you think. Be in touch. Leave a message on my website, countervortex.org. This has been the Counter Vortex Podcast with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time. Revolution lives. The revolution never dies. All eyes are on in lib. Cause they're keeping it alive. Right viruses on the air. Radio fresh, it fills the sky. Doing what many would not dare. Dodging bullets from both sides Abdul Sarut is on the mic Leading a protest in the streets It's just like seven years ago No surrender, no retreat The revolution lives the revolution never dies All eyes are on it live Cause they're keeping it alive My mood is on the bridge Above the Idlib highway sign Waving the revolution flag Pride and defiance fill his eyes Rania Kaiser stands above Filming the thousands with one voice She tells the butcher he'll go down And on the day we will rejoice Revolution lives Revolution never dies. All eyes are on it, live. Cause they're keeping it alive. Well, something's gotta give. This just might be the time when we see the mountain top. God give us strength to make the climb Whether Idlib is your home Or you came from another place Let's all sing the rally song Until it fills up every space 
revolution lives. The revolution never dies. All lies are wrong and live. Cause they're keeping it alive. The revolution lives. The revolution never dies. All eyes are on it, live.